All right. I am thankful for all of the people who serve, but I know those who serve up front, Danielle and Seth, do such a good job, and they've stepped up with some other things. And Scott stepped up um, in a big way, too, this week with sound and video. And so just really thankful for those guys specifically. I know there's lots more people involved, but those guys specifically. So thankful for that. Uh, If you have a copy of God's Word, which I hope you do, I hope you bring your Bible with you every time you come. Um, Go ahead and open it up to Mark chapter 11. We are a Bible church, so um, meaning we, we're going to study the scriptures, we're going to open it up, we're going to exposit the text, and so it's good, it's good to follow along with, 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 your, uh, with your copy of God's Word, so I'd encourage you to do that each week. And I, pref- I prefer a paper Bible. I don't want to shame anybody with, uh, with their iPhones. I'm not making any eye contact with you, but uh, I just, I, you know, flipping those pages, old school style, man, it's, it's good to do. It's helpful. So Mark chapter 11, and we will look at verses 1 through 11 this morning. So let me read that for us. This is God's word. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside, the, outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is God's word. It's entirely true, and it's given to us in love, let me pray. Father, we pray that you would uh, open our, our ears um, and our minds to behold these glorious truths that you have laid out for us uh, in, this, uh, in, in this passage this morning. That you will free us from the distractions, not of the physical distractions around us, although we may have those, but more of those distractions that come into our minds and come into our heart as we as we close out a week and as we begin a new week, there can be mounting anxieties that are, that are uh, coming after us right now. There could be so many things that we're thinking about as we, as some students start school again this week and, and with our jobs and, and people getting sick and, and all of those things can cloud our minds and clog our ears uh, to the gospel truth that you want us to hear this morning. So God, I pray that you would clear us of that right now and that you would open your word to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So one, one of the, the joys of being a pastor uh, is being able to uh, marry people, to officiate weddings. And so whenever I have the opportunity to, to do that, to marry people, um, Tara, my wife, and I uh, will typically do that couple's marriage counseling. So if any of you end up getting married in here um, we'll, we, and you want me to marry you, that's what will happen. You will sit with us for about six weeks 
and, and get marriage counseling with us. And it's a fun time. It's an encouraging time. Um, but for the first three weeks or so of our marriage counseling, the only topic we talk about is sin. Now, I know that's not a cheery topic, especially when you're dealing with, with couples who are excited about marriage and they're excited about all of those things that come along with marriage. But the reason we do this is because we want to set this couple up for the reality that they are about to marry a sinner. Because right before you get married, you think that person you are about to marry is perfect. They can do no wrong. And so we quickly crush that dream in that first three weeks. Because what tends to happen, this is what tends to happen, is they have a, they have a wrong view of their future spouse. Or, or they have a wrong view of what marriage is going to do for them. It's going to make them happy and, and it's going to solve all of their problems. And then they carry that wrong view of marriage and carry that wrong view of their spouse into their marriage. And so when the first conflict arises, and it will, or that first misunderstanding happens, and it will, one of them, or both of them, is left thinking, what have I done? Who is this person that I married? Now, if they don't quickly come to an understanding to the reality of their marriage to a fellow sinner... That misperception that they have ends up leading them apart rather than together. We'll translate that same line of thinking to Christianity. Many leave the faith or, or, or wrestle with the faith not because they don't believe what the Bible says about Jesus. Rather, they've believed the wrong things about Jesus. They, they have a false idea of who he is based on what the culture says about Jesus or what the culture has told them about Christianity. Uh, or they've been led to believe by a church or a pastor, sadly, a false idea about Christianity. That somehow Christianity is this bed of roses. And that when you become a Christian, all of your problems will be solved. No suffering will happen. No sorrow will exist. And that's just not true. Because when the first temptation comes, and it will, or that first suffering arises, and it will, they immediately fall away from the gospel. And we know that to be true because that's exactly what Jesus taught in his parable in Mark chapter 4 about the parable of the sower. So I, th- I really believe if you were to talk to, to just about any atheist today, someone who says they don't believe in God, uh, about what causes them to hesitate to believe in Jesus or to believe in Christianity or to believe in, in, in God for that matter, you would probably agree with their reasons. And the reason you would agree is because what they believe about Jesus, what they believe about Christianity, what they believe about God is not what is taught in the Bible. It's something they've heard or something they've seen demonstrated that isn't biblical Christianity. It's not the real Jesus that's being proclaimed. And so they've been given or have chosen to believe false ideas of Christianity. And this is where we find the crowds in our text 
today. And these, these are, this isn't a different crowd that we're dealing with here. These are the same crowds that have witnessed Jesus' miraculous works. They have seen it with their own eyes. They've heard his teaching, and they've even said about his teaching, this is a teaching that we have never heard. Of all the religious leaders of our day, we have never heard anyone proclaim truth in the way that this man proclaims truth. This is the same crowd. And while they walk into Jerusalem praising him, later they will accuse him. Why? Well, it's because they really don't know who Jesus is, and they don't understand what Christianity is all about. They don't understand what it means to, when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. That's foreign to them. So this morning I want us to consider three aspects of Jesus' identity. And I want us to consider that because, uh, so, so that we don't fall into the same trap as these followers of Jesus have fallen into. But also so that we can begin to see Jesus in the proper light, which is the light of the scriptures. So three, three aspects of Jesus' identity that I want us to, to see here. One is the promise that he's the promised king. Two is he's the victorious king. And then despite these, these two clear truths that we see in the scriptures, he's also the forgotten king. So the promised king, the victorious king, and the forgotten king. And as you'll see, when, when you begin to see Jesus in the proper light of, of God's word, you, you'll be made ready for those sufferings and those temptations and those hardships that you will encounter as a Christian. But you won't see them as a waste. Or you won't see them as something you just kind of have to, to, to muscle through. But you'll see them as God's way of drawing you further up and further in to Christ. So first... Jesus is the promised king there in verses 1 through 6. And I want to reread these verses for us. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter, you will find a colt, or some of your translations may say donkey, tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. Now, I reread those verses because it may seem strange that Mark has dedicated this many verses, even though it's only six, to this incident of dealing with the process of acquiring a cult. And even on my first reading of this um, this week as I began to study, I was just going to skip those six verses until I decided to start digging in a little bit more and digging in a little bit more. And I realized and remembered that even as we've studied the Gospel of Mark, we know by now, or at least I should know by now, that Mark does not waste words. He doesn't waste space in his gospel. It's a very short gospel, the shortest of the four. And Mark uses every word, every sentence, every part of his gospel to communicate something to us about Jesus. Even in these first six verses. 
Because what's happening here, and Jesus doing this, Jesus is communicating in these six verses that seem irrelevant at first, the fulfillment of promise. So Mark, as he, as he does throughout his gospel, is weaving the Old Testament scriptures throughout these verses to show us this very thing. So Mark, unlike some of the other gospel writers, you don't typically see Mark where he says, uh, it is written, which typically signifies to you that it's written in the Old Testament. And you can, you know, if you have cross references in your copy of God's word, you can go back and see where that, that Old Testament reference is. Mark typically doesn't do that. Mark is just kind of weaving it in because he knows his audience so well that he knows that when they read these words, that their mind is going to be triggered back to the Old Testament scriptures. And he knows that about them. So the first way that we see that Mark does this is in verse 2 of chapter 11. And for this particular example, we could, we could look at a number of places in the Old Testament. But for time's sake, I want us to quickly turn to the first book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 49. Genesis chapter 49. And Genesis 49 is one of three of what is known as a messianic poem that we find in the books of the law. The first five books of the Old Testament are the books of the law or the Pentateuch uh, as we know them. Uh, But this is called a messianic psalm. The other two can be found in Numbers 24 and Deuteronomy 32. But we're just going to look at this one today because it is very much where Mark wanted the the minds of his readers to go. And as the author of Genesis relates to the promise that is made to Judah here, we begin to hear hints of what we are reading in Mark chapter 11. So I'm going to read for us Genesis 49 verses 8 through 12. Judah. Your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. So here in this text, we see Judah being promised to be the father of the kings of Israel until the Messiah came. So the first thing you kind of see there, and maybe it, maybe it stood out to you, maybe it didn't, didn't, but Judah is called a lion's cub in verse 9. To which Jesus is referred to in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, as the lion of Judah. So we're already, we already kind of triggered there to know that this is not just about Judah. Judah is dead. Judah is dead. So we know that this is pointing way beyond Judah and his kingship here to the lion of Judah that is Christ then in verse 10 we hear the promise of the everlasting kingdom of Judah so the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet it's a kingly line the author is telling us 
that will never grow stale. It will never be useless like the, the, the British uh, have their useless kind of kingdom now. But it eventually will find its fulfillment and its reign in King Jesus. And then the echo we hear in Mark chapter 11, verse 2, to Genesis chapter 49, verse 11, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. This confirms for us this messianic character, the messianic character that this animal, this donkey, signifies. So even in the untying of this colt, it wasn't a random act, but it was a sign that the promised king had arrived, that the king was here, that the king was present on earth and that he was bringing his kingdom to bear upon the creation. And then things happened just as Jesus said they would happen. So turn back to Mark chapter 11. This is why Mark is overly specific in verses 1 through 6. Because he he doesn't want us to miss how this promise is executed. So every one of Jesus' words that he has spoken in the Gospels is coming true. And then in verses 1 through 6, kind of demonstrates that for us in a very kind of real way. So you have Jesus' commands, and then you have his disciples executing these commands in verses uh, 2 through 6. So in verse 2, Jesus says to them, Go into the village, and you will find a colt there. And then in verse 4, the disciples, they went away, and they found a colt tied there, just as Jesus said. And then you have verse 2 again. Jesus tells them very specifically, When you find that colt, untie it and bring it to me. And they do exactly as Jesus says in verse 4. They go and untie it and they bring it to Jesus. And then Jesus tells them, if anyone says to you, why are you doing this to them? In verse 3, tell them the Lord has need of it. And then in verses 5 and 6, just as Jesus said it would happen, those who were there said to them, what are you doing? Untying the colt. And they told them what Jesus said and they let them go. Now, These verses, verses 1 through 6, do not make sense apart from an understanding of Old Testament text like Genesis chapter 39. Okay, I think it was Andy Stanley who said uh, not too long ago that we can unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. This proves him to be wrong. We can't do that. Because this is what Mark is highlighting here in, in, uh, in Mark chapter 11. These instances remind us that the promised king has come. And that the promised king is Jesus, the Lion of Judah. The scriptures are being fulfilled. The prophecies of the Old Testament are coming true. That's how we know them to be true because they are actually happening. And that the things that Jesus has been doing and saying throughout His earthly life up to this point are all pointing to this truth. That He is the King that has come. So if you miss the fact that Jesus is the promised King, you will also miss the fact just as his followers did, 
that as the promised king, he is therefore the promised Messiah come to save his people from their sin. Which tells us that Jesus is not only uh, the promised king, he's also the king that comes victorious. He's the victorious king. Look at verses 7 through 10. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Well, unlike past encounters that we've seen in in, in Mark's gospel uh, where Jesus... Uh, does does a miraculous performs a miraculous event? Lots of people see it. Uh, Jesus, you know, tells them, "Look, don't tell anybody about this. Let's let's keep this quiet because my time has not yet come." So, unlike those instances in Mark's gospel, um, Jesus is not really remaining secretive anymore. He's doing the exact opposite here. We could say. This is one of the most popular times or popular seasons in Jerusalem as they approach the Passover celebration. So you could kind of think of it um, as like Master's Week in Augusta, which is kind of a religious thing in our city. Um, and all of these people from all over the, the known world at that time would just flood into Jerusalem. So it wasn't this quiet, sleepy city any, anymore. It was a place where everybody was going. All eyes were on Jerusalem. And, and instead of a quiet entry into Jerusalem that Jesus could have done, there is much fanfare. Jesus riding on a colt was one way attention would be drawn to them because as most people would uh, approach uh, the city of Jerusalem, they would, they would hop off their donkeys and make the rest of the, the, the travel into the city just on foot. Well, Jesus didn't do this. He was mounted on a donkey. People could see him coming in. People heard the shouts of, 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 of these people, of his followers, proclaiming who they thought he was. And then they're spreading out their cloaks and they're spreading out uh, branches out along the road as he came into the city, which indicates that their understanding of Jesus, at, at least at this moment, was one of political victory. Their earthly king, they believe, has finally come. The kingdom of David is rising. And we know they thought Jesus carried some sort of royal significance by what they cry out as he comes into the city. In verses 9 and 10, they say, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, whether they were using these words correctly or, or if they, you know, they understood them to be using them in the correct way, these words were still warranted because they were true words. And the reason they're true is because they are quoting directly from the scriptures. Verse 9 is a direct quotation from Psalm 118, verse 
26, which is uh, these psalms uh, from Psalm 113 to Psalm 118, I believe, are the songs of Hallel, which are the songs of hallelujah, the songs of praise to God that the Jews would sing. These, this is what they're singing as they walk before Jesus and as they walk behind Jesus. They are singing hallelujahs to their king that has come. And then in verse 10, verse 10 is taken from the promise of Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 24 and 25. And that promise says to God's people that David's kingdom would reign forever. And so they know that. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. The kingdom of David has come in Christ. This is true. Jesus comes from a whole line of kings. Some of them you will know, like King David. And then you have King Solomon. And then you have King Josiah. But what they're missing, what this crowd is missing, what Jesus' followers are missing here in their understanding is that Jesus is not like these other kings. But that He is the greater David. That he is the greater Solomon. That he is the greater Josiah. That he is the greater king. The king above all kings. The king of kings. That as Genesis 39 told us, it says, The scepter will never leave from Jesus' kingdom because his kingdom is unending. King David died. King Solomon died. King Josiah died. Jesus does not go away. He's always reigning. Listen again to the words that, that Allie read for us earlier from Zechariah 9, 9 through 10, because this confirms everything that is happening in Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Because unlike the, the reign and rule of King David, and King Solomon, and King Josiah, and every other king that has come before them or after them, Jesus reigns forever. And His rule is over all of creation. There is not one square inch, Abraham Kuyper says, there is not one square inch that the Lord does not declare mine. But then we get to verse 11. And just like that, it seems, the crowds have vanished. The shouts of praise grow silent almost immediately, it seems. And Jesus now remains the forgotten king. Look at verse 11. So he's coming off these high praises, this high fanfare. And then you have verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple... And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So the same crowd 
that was shouting his praises are nowhere to be seen. But we will see them again. But the next time we see them is in Mark chapter 15. And when we see them again in Mark chapter 15, they'll be on the opposite end of the spectrum. And instead of shouting uh, words of praise and Hosanna in the highest, they will be shouting the phrase, crucify him. These exact same people, crucify him. So what happens to the crowd's attitude between chapter 11 and chapter 15? It's not a lot of time. Maybe a few days, maybe a week. Well, they've forgotten their true king. Just like that. They've allowed the the pulsating nature of the culture around them to change their views about who Jesus actually is. So maybe they're thinking along these lines. Well, it seems that our our religious leaders, uh, and they're really smart. They've had the schooling. They're way smarter than us. They're way more disciplined than us. They know way more than we do. Our religious leaders and our political leaders who are powerful, they can can crush us. They can kill us. They can do whatever they want to us. Well, these these all think that this man is blaspheming. Maybe they're right. Maybe, maybe he is uh, a, a lying lunatic, as they say. Maybe he is this heretic that they're proclaiming him to be. And this line of thinking has not gone away from us, has it? It's, it's true today. The culture is screaming at us from, from all angles to be tolerant to be accepting of all forms of the way people want to think and believe and and live. And they may begin to instill in you doubt or maybe even fear. And so you stay silent at best. Or you you begin to change your way of thinking and say, you know what, These these are smart people. These are our leaders. These are are people who know better than I. Maybe I should change my view here. Maybe I should even change what I believe. But our responsibility as Christians, as the church, is to remind ourselves and to remind each other of the truth and reality of the person and work of Christ. Not just on Sunday. Not just during your your missional community gathering, but day by day and moment by moment. And we have to be in a place, if we want to know how to do this, we have to be in a place that tells us about these promises. We have to be a people of the Word. So more and more, as time moves on, I'm noticing that the Bible is falling by the wayside. And I know for a fact, with the amount of people in this room, and I'm sure the amount of people who are listening online, that you are tempted daily, as a believer, to neglect getting in the Bible. I know that for a fact because that's true of me as well. It's a temptation for me as well. But we have to be a people of the Word. And the reason we have to be a people of the Word is because the Word of God is where we learn about our King, Jesus. And we're reminded then of His goodness to us. 
as our king. We're reminded of the promises that are only fulfilled in Christ. And we're reminded that Jesus is not a political leader. He's not even a political tool to get your party elected uh, during election season. That he's not some ordinary man, uh, specially gifted that God used to bring about change into the world and to set up for us a good example for us to follow. Jesus is none of those things. But that he is the Messiah King. That he is the shepherd king. That he is the greater David who came to give his life as a ransom for many. No other religion in the world can say that. Only our king, only King Jesus has done that for you. Which makes Jesus fundamentally different than any other person of power or significance that has ever lived or ever will live. And the Bible clearly tells us that. So our text this morning is of utmost importance because it points us back to the promises of the Old Testament and then how these promises are fulfilled in Christ in the New Testament. Because this is what it means. It means that from the very beginning, the promise has been to his people. Your king is coming to you. Your king is coming to you. And this is significant because unless Jesus comes to you, you will never, never come to him. He has to make the first move. You will not make the first move. If he does not. And so this is the story that Jesus has been telling us all along. I'll read again Mark chapter 1 verse 15. Jesus says, The kingdom is here. Repent and believe the gospel. And what that phrase is, is the real Jesus of the Bible calling you right now. He's making that move towards you. And he's calling you to himself. Will you come to him? Will you come to the true king today? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we are so thankful for...